Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we talk about moving from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use and regenerates natural systems. I'm Seb from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and I'm the host of this podcast. In today's episode, we're exploring the greatest hits of the circular economy, including innovations in headphones, packaging, beer, clothing, farming, and much more. Joining me as co-host is Lou Waldegrave from the Foundation's editorial and digital team, and our guest is a veritable encyclopedia for circular economy examples, the Foundation's very own case study guru, Nick Jeffries. We started by hearing how a pair of headphones have been fundamentally transformed in terms of design and business model by circular economy thinking. Hear how Nick tells the story. So without further ado, let's crack into some of the circular economy's greatest hits. Sebo, if you would, please. I knew I was here for a reason. Yes, you were. (laughs) I'd like to begin with these rather fetching headphones. Nick... Can you tell me why are these such a great example of the circular economy and what makes them so distinctive? Okay. Hi, Seb. Hi, Lou. It's great to be back on the show. Yeah, anyone who knows me well um, will have heard the story of Gerrard Street. I do do tell a story quite often. And the reason why is because they're a very nice, studio-friendly, compact illustration of two really, really important building blocks of the circular economy, and that is design and business models. So the two young designers uh, who set up Gerard Street, they, uh, they, were, they were really into music and they made this observation uh, that about every year, something like 15 million kilograms of headphone material gets thrown away. Uh, and, and, you know, and the industry, the sector is really growing very quickly. It's gonna double every decade. And so they thought, well, how can we redesign headphones so there isn't so much, so much waste? And so what they've done is they've created this modular headphone set, which they have reversible connections. And so you can swap in, swap out components as technology develops and, you know, you want to upgrade. But so just, to, just to confirm, Nick, with these headphones, all these different parts, there's actually a lot of different parts that go into a headphone. You can swap those out and repair them and replace exactly, them. Yeah. This comes apart into several different pieces. We're not going to demonstrate it live because <laughs> yeah. we don't want to wreck person's headphones that we're borrowing but it's actually quite simple when you've got the box and the instructions indeed yeah yeah I mean, electronics is is, is 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 a sector which is very connected to sort of new materials and digital and so it really is evolving very quickly so you know upgrades happen every year you have better sound better noise cancelling whatever and and Gerard Street reckon that they can take 85% of the components from one set and use it in the next. Yeah. But that's just a design. The other thing is the business model. So rather than buying the headphones, they offer it as a subscription model because not everyone can afford headphones or maybe only want headphones for a limited amount of time. So you pay, you know, eight, nine, ten euros a month and then you have the use of the headphones and whenever and when you finish with them, you return and it stays in the Gerard Street uh, e- ecosystem. But, but this is just like, it's a small example to illustrate those two fundamental things, circular design, business models. Yeah. It can be applied to white goods. It can be applied to mobility. It can be applied to buildings. You can design buildings that are more easily, more flexible, more easy to take apart, 
more, you're able to change as economic circumstances change um, and you're able to offer as a as different business model. So that's, it's a beautiful illustration of those two points. The interesting thing about that for me is that, I mean, headphones can almost seem like it's just an everyday product. We can use them seamlessly, especially people who work in offices and all those sorts of things. 15 million kilograms of waste every year. I think that's one of your favourite stats. You like a good stat, Nick. You're famous ooh. around our parts for it's, liking a good statistic. It's definitely in the top 10. <laughs> um, but uh, this is one illustration of a, a sort of a zero in on the potential of rethinking the design and what that starts to open up. And then obviously once you've rethought the design, then you're incentivized to behave very differently is, is why they've um, mm. also built in this different business model because if you're going to design stuff to be able to capture all that value back, yeah. You need to have something that allows you to do that. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. And as you said, there's a lot of different ways that there's a lot of different products that can be applied to. And we've actually, I think, on the desk got other examples of that, even something like packaging. Packaging, another thing that sits in our economy. We probably encounter packaging almost every single day, um, but thoughtlessly, and it's most of it's single use right now. Um, we've got a couple of examples here. Loop and Splosh, where they've innovated again with this design and business model framework with circular economy principles in mind. Yes, yeah, sadly, that point, sadly, we do encounter every day and not just in the supermarkets in our houses. We see it on strewn all over the beaches and in the oceans of, of, of the world. And so, so, you know, there is this pa plastic packaging in many ways is the sort of quintessentially linear uh, uh, part of our economy. Um, and and when you think about what kind of solutions to, to address uh, uh, this issue, you know, recycling comes to mind, but it, we, we're not going to recycle our way out of this, out of, out of this issue. In fact, there was a, a report done recently that said, that said if, we, if we put 500,000 people connected them to recycling infrastructure every day for the next 20, 30 years, you're still going to have more plastics going off uh, at the ocean in 2040 than now. So you're not going to be able to recycle. We need... Other things. This is the Pew Research is, study that yeah, came this out is the Pew uh, during the summer. Yes, yes, exactly. So we're not going to recycle our way out of this uh, situation. So we need other things. We need to eliminate plastic packaging that we don't require, but also we need to innovate. So uh, our plastic packaging is um, compostable, recyclable, or in this case, reusable. Feel so, free to pick any of these. Oh, yeah. So these, yeah. So just <laughs> yeah. So so these two uh, metal tins uh, here. That's an example of uh, reusable packaging for the food. For the food, um, it's a company called Loop, and they offer a, a reuse home model. So what you do is you have your porridge or your rice delivered, and then once you uh, have finished, you return the tin. A new tin is replaced, and then uh, uh, Loop collect it. They clean it back to the retailer or back to the food brand, and then, and then the uh, packaging gets reused. And so that's actually quite a good illustration. It's not just a packaging on its own. You need the ecosystem. You need all the players. You need the logis logistics in place. You need the cle cleaning company in place. You need the retailers to be on board. So that's really important, that collaboration, that ecosystem. And, and it's not, and, and this is just an example from food. This, here's another example here. This is a, uh, a reusable shampoo uh, bottle. Uh, and actually, this is where design comes in quite nicely. This bottle actually uses a little bit more plastic than you would have in a, a single use. But if you use it 30 times, which you can, mm. it's got a nice, like, uh, uh, screwable lid that can be, you know, you can refill it. So if you can use that 30 times, you'll use, in terms of life cycle, 95% less plastic than if you did 30 single-use bottles. So, yeah, design... 
there's a couple innovation. of things I'd pick up on what you said there, Nick. One is, is this, it really brings to mind this notion of effectiveness over efficiency. You mentioned the sort of ecosystem that sits around our products. The efficiency agenda for plastic has seen us use less and less material to try and reduce the amount of material inputs required, which, you know, on the face of it seems like a relatively simple, uh, sensible thing to do, but almost increases that, that product sort of single-use status. Mm. The solution that Splosh and Loop have op opted for, I mean, Loop's actually not using plastic anymore, mm -hmm. um, is uh, actually a, a completely different. It's more about thinking about what, how does this sit in a system? How do we recover this? How do we deliver these products? What's the system? And the other thing I, I think that those stories tell me is my, one of our colleagues, Joe Arles, who's our circular design lead at the foundation, mm -hmm. often talks about this notion of circular-ish. Mm -hmm. So the idea of these examples is kind of being inspirations for the types of thinking, the types of applications, the principles. We have to innovate towards this and sort of work out what works. And Loop's obviously an example that's had a lot of media attention and attention recently. Many of our viewers might be saying, well, there's, there's things here that don't completely stack up, including some of those ecosystem points. How does it actually work in practice? Mm. We're going to find a lot of that out, I guess, over the next few years as, as more of these kinds of models and design innovations come onto the market. So that's, a, that's uh, two examples of our greatest hits so far. Now, Nick, you promised me that you would wear one of our greatest hits today. Lou, can you guess what Nick's wearing that is the circular economy? And it's not his pants. Uh, <laughs> I've always liked the cut of Nick's cloth, such a style guru, as well as a case study one. Uh, is it the T-shirt? It is the T-shirt. It is a T-shirt. Yeah. So this, what this T-shirt responds to, T-shirt and actually this jacket, they're made by a, a UK company called Paramo. And in clothing, often we're looking for, as well as aesthetics and the, you know, the cut and stuff like that, but also the performance. So say if you're using it for sport or if you're going outside and you need water repellency. And often um, the sort of almost the default to get that performance is... Are, are chemical, chemical coatings. Um, so one example, well, is, is PFC, poly, sorry, perfluorocarbons. It's a type of, it's a family of chemicals that are used to impregnate uh, uh, fabrics, uh, textiles, to make them waterproof. But what we're finding is that, uh, well, Greenpeace, they did a, a little study uh, a few years back, and they went to eight of the most remote locations in the world, places like north of China, Finland, Russia, they took snow samples, ice samples, and they were finding these PFCs, these water repellency chemicals, in the snow, in the ice. And of course, these then percolate into our water systems, uh, surface water systems, and then our conventional treatment does not take them out. And so they found, actually, in 33 states of, of, of the US, that they found these PFCs in their water supply. Yeah, so clearly this is not a good thing. These PFCs, they're linked to things like hormone damage, uh, some carp they're perhaps carcinogenic. So Paramo, they said, well, how can we have high-performance wear but not using these kind of chemicals? And so they have like, come up with a list of green chemistry, bio-benign chemicals. So they have their sort of, you know, approved list. And then they use that list to make... Uh, formulations that then get this um, these kind of performances. Wow. Um, so yeah, so it's a sort of safe and circular materials for the circular economy. That's a really really important aspect. And inspired somewhat by nature, I guess the way nature works. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, uh, some some forward thinking fashion designers are indeed looking to nature because nature has these all these crazy 
performance characteristics, you know, water repellency, really lightweight structures and so on, iridescent colours. And they don't use toxic chemicals. Sorry, she does not use toxic chemicals, yeah? What nature uses is a very small palette of materials, doesn't use a lot of energy, all of her, pro all her processes are low temperature, low energy, but just very, very clever with the way she uses structures. So for example, a butterfly wing has this lovely iridescent color that if you look at it from different directions, it changes, really sparkling iridescent. There's a company in Japan called Teijin that are using this micro layering inspired by butterflies to create uh, garments that are beautiful colors, produced at low energy, not using dyes. So, so there's the design of business models. This is about what goes into the, you know, how do we ensure that the material palettes that we're designing our products with are health, uh, circular and safe. And actually anyone who wants to dive into that a bit more, there is a collection of resources on our circular design guide at circulardesignguide.com, uh, specifically on safe and healthy uh, uh, circular materials choices. Okay, guys, we've done electronics, plastics, clothing, other products, tell us about food. Food, yes. It is nearly lunchtime here. It is nearly well, lunchtime, so. <laughs> and un unfortunately, it is a Tuesday because what, what's sitting over there are a couple I of cans. These were for us after the show. Are they? Okay, maybe we can have that uh, after the show. A couple of cans of beer there, and there's a circular story behind them. Um, but before I go into that, you know, when, you, when we think of circular economy, we don't necessarily think of like you know the food system. Sort of, you know, how does it apply to the food system? So. To answer that, let's consider like, what is the linearity of the food system? What is the state that we're trying to move from? The, the food system, as it currently is, is incredibly wasteful. It degrades nature, like the way we farm and, and, and produce our food can be very degrading. It's not necessarily very healthy. So what can, we, what can we do about it? Well, let's just look at just one of those characteristics of the, of the linear system, waste. At every stage of the food value, we call it the food value chain, going from production, processing, distribution, retail, catering or whatever, at every stage you lose, you lose um, perfectly, you know, byproducts or perfectly good food. So what can we do about that? First thing I reckon is stop thinking about it as a chain. That's a very linear way of thinking about it. Thinking about it as, think about it as a web, a network where you can have these positive interconnections, you can have this really, really symbiotic sharing of, of, of nutrients or, or surplus food between the different parts of the web, such as bakeries, bread, sandwich shops. Often there is a surplus of bread at the end of the day. What do you need to make beer? You need malted barley, yeah? Bread pretty well is malted barley. So what Toastdale have done is they've replaced 30% of the barley inputs at the uh, uh, production stage with surplus bread, leftover bread, and they've created a beautiful beer. You can have, a, we talked about earlier, pale ale, lager, such. For any beer palette, they have, a, they have, they have a, uh, an offering. And then in that way, you can have bread, you can have beer, but you, but you don't need so much land because you know, you're making like uh, symbiotic use of those, between those two uh, parts of the food uh, sector. So that's, one, that's one, one aspect of a circular economy of food, reducing waste uh, and, and making better use of food byproducts. But there are other aspects to it. And I, I think we're going to... We're going to dive... Just before yeah. we do, this, this also, we talk about here at the Foundation, this notion of designing food, that food is designed. And in some ways, this is a bit of an example of that, the toast ale example. It's, it's this notion that food 
it, it, you know, we don't think about it as being designed, but it actually no, is. Don't. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, a really, really good point, actually. So, yeah, food, just like any other product in the, um, you know, sort of in our economy or whatever, has a, a design, conscientious design. I suppose if you're just buying an apple or a carrot or something from the supermarket, that probably doesn't, if it's a simple ingredient. But anything that has some, undergoes some kind of change, some kind of process to make that final meal or that final product has a design input. And so circular food designers, if they understand, say, what is beneficial for the environment or, you know, where the surplus of food is being generated. So if they use those beneficial for environment ingredients or those surplus food, turn them into food products or meals. So we've heard about a range of examples of everyday products being transformed from the clothes we wear to the beer we drink. From this point onwards, we're going to look a little wider and later on you'll hear about the circular economy strategy of one of the largest corporations in the world, as well as why a city in Brazil is our government and city's lead's favourite example of circular economy in action in a regional context. But first, take a listen to Brazilian farmer Leontino Balbo Jr. describing a completely different approach to agriculture on his sugarcane farm in Brazil. This segment was taken from a documentary shot at his farm, so you can hear the insects and wildlife in the background, and he's talking to us as he walks around his land. I made myself open to the nature wisdom, and suddenly I started seeing inside the forest, like an infographic, everything happening, the birds, the insects, and that everything was interconnected. And there was a very sophisticated system of communication. And I realized that they, all, all those insects were not attacking any plant inside the forest. But the same insects used to attack the canes. So why? So I started observing what used to happen inside that forest. and. One by one, example by example, I learned, I started transferring to the agricultural area. There are lots of useful information in the nature that we can use to create the basis of a new production system, which is less impactant, which is more rational and more efficient. We can observe that these are totally healthy leaves and the reason is the focus here we do not put focus too much on the crop the focus is in the environment as a whole in the ecosystem as a whole the result of that is the ecosystem itself takes care about the crop we don't fertilize the crop we feed the soil life and then they take care about the cane about its nutrition it's an immunologic system, and we don't have one eaten part, one bite, nothing, no disease in our cane. 20,000 hectares. Ecosystem revitalizing agriculture is an agriculture which at the same time provides all conditions for the crop growth with no problems with plagues, diseases, but at the same time, providing to the environment the most important uh, environmental services, like uh, preserving the water, in improving and keeping soil fertility, 
bringing back the fauna biodiversity and absorbing carbon from other activities of the economy. One of the most uh, interesting results of the application of the revitalizing agriculture is the radical change of the soil structure. It was recovered in a such good level, high level, that the soils are even reaching um, a soil fertility class higher than, than there were before man started disturbing the environment. This is a structure, naturally structured, rich soil. And it retains four times more water than a conventional soil. In a way that we produce 20% more of the conventional production without any irrigation. And the best thing is, is this soil helps the water life cycle. So that was Leontino Balbo Jr. talking about his sugarcane farm in Brazil. Amazing story, no pesticides, no fertilizers, more, he often says, as much or more biodiversity than many of Brazil's national parks. Um, what a great story, Lou. I love that guy's passion, and I really think that that is one of the most inspirational examples of regenerative agriculture we have. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, it's a great story. I never, I never tire of that story. And uh, I've been very fortunate over the last uh, couple of years to interact with farmers like Leontino, but uh, not just, you know, he, he, he farms 40,000 acres, but it works at the one acre level as well, the one acre, the 10 acre, yeah. uh, all those different scales. Um, and there's so many things you could say about that. I mean, he did. He pointed out, for example, that the soil holds four times more water than if it was just done in a conventional way. And that's so important for the future, where uh, in, certainly in places like uh, Africa, which um, where you know you get more droughts, you need more water retention in your soils to create more climate resilient agriculture. A um, couple of other things like about that, that it is a bit of a journey. It was very experimental. It didn't happen overnight. It took about 15 years. Yeah. Um, and he's, and that was, because it's a family farm, he was able to experiment in different parts of his farm, but not all farmers are so lucky. And so it does actually highlight the importance that you do need financial mechanisms to, you know, to help with this transition. Um, but it's great. I mean, his is, his is large scale. Toastale before that is small scale. We need all these scales, all this diversity to really make the circular economy happen. Just to drill on that point about scale, he's one of the largest exporters of organic sugarcane in the world. He's yeah. not, you know, he's not operating at a yeah, small level, servicing a few businesses in Brazil. Yeah, no, 30, I think he has about 34% of the organic uh, sugar market worldwide. So it just shows it can happen at scale. We need more big companies like Native doing this. Well, um, a lot not him obviously, but a lot of the examples we've looked at so far have been from relatively small innovators. But what about the big corporates? In this next clip, we're going to hear from the CEO of Danone, I do beg your pardon, Emmanuel Faber. But how does a company like Danone take steps in that direction and also meet shareholder demands and generate profits? Wow, yeah, that's obviously the uh, in, in, one, in one way, the complex part. But we have to be very clear that it is not opposite to. It has to be both. And the only question, but it's an important question, is 
the horizon of time uh, at which we are investing, because when we invest in carbon, when we invest in plastic circularity, what we have decided to do, so in France, for instance, by 2025, all our ingredients will be sourced 100% from regenerative agriculture. We're using France as a, a, a pilot board for this. In the US, uh, we have uh, radically changed 75,000 of acres out of GMOs uh, of forage for the milk of the farms, uh, for, the, for the cows uh, of the farms that supply our milk, um, turning to regenerative agricultural practices, sinking carbon back in the soil, uh, generating more biodiversity in the seeds that are being used and monitoring this uh, in a matter of two years. So we do it, but it's an investment. So it starts by an investment and then it returns. The, the yield of forage in the 50,000 acres in the US that we started has started by going down. The yield of milk uh, by the cows went down because we changed their nutritional uh, um, combination. But after only two years, it started to go up again. So we know that um, this is an investment. So the question is the horizon uh, that we discuss with our shareholders. How much can we on the path of uh, profitable growth for Danone, can we afford to uh, invest for the long term, invest for the mid term, or deliver for the short term in terms of EPS growth? So that's one one dimension. Another one is if you look at uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 ecosystem of the company, you could say my business is just to focus on my profit, and I don't care about farmers, you know. Um, I pay the lowest price I can. But we know, especially because as basically a milk company, even if today we are also the global leader in plant-based alternative proteins uh, in the US and in Europe in particular, um, we know that because we collect milk every couple of days to these farms, that without the farmers making a living and them their own system being resilient, they will not be farming tomorrow. The prices are going up all the place. I mean, farming is essential. Uh, today in France, again, um, because of climate change, we will need to change the seeds of wheat, the seeds of maize, if we still want to be able to raise those crops. So there is a, an urgent need, not a long-term need. And that's the whole discussion that we're having with our shareholders and the basis of why they accepted this idea that we needed to accelerate on our climate investment plans. That was Emmanuel Faber, CEO of Danone, speaking at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's summit last week. Quite a few things we could unpick from that uh, little snippet, Nick. Um, the ambition to have 100% of ingredients regeneratively farmed, the con that's connecting back to Leontino. And um, Emmanuel Faber, they're really talking about his, even a massive company like Danone, the interconnectedness of his business with the wider ecosystem again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say. It's so great that we have uh, Emmanuel, um, as, uh, his company is one of our strategic partners. And for me, like the really big thing that I take from that is like the journey, the journey from linear to circular with a big company like that, it starts with like strong leadership, yeah, a strategy, mindset, and then, and then the other things. But you do need like, that leadership and that strategy. So, you know, Emmanuel's a really strong leader, very strong advocate of regenerative agriculture. They have their strategy to be, I think, 20, by 2025, fully regenerative in France. And then maybe 
by 2050, zero carbon around the world. And then, but then you have to be a little bit experimental. So we started at France. They've got their 75,000 acres in, um, in the US. Um, and so, yeah, and so that sort of, um, uh, sort of reinforces that point I made earlier about that sort of experimental mindset. And then the shareholders, of course. I'm so glad that Emma asked that question because a big company like Danone, they still have to make profits. So you need to get the shareholders on board to think a little bit longer term. Brilliant. And you talked earlier in the context of Leontino and Toastale about those different scales. So great that we've got an example like Gerard Street. Nice example, clear design change, business model change, product that you can buy or rather subscribe to um, today. The reality of that sort of parallel conversation that's happening in a, in a very large corporation, how do we start to innovate towards this? How do we steer that tanker? Yeah. It's very interesting to look at those two scales. Definitely, definitely. I mean, with IKEA, for example, another one of our strategic partners, they have the, good, they have the strong leadership, they have the strategy, I think fully circular by 2030, and now they've got to get into the, into the, into the weeds, into the details. They've recently analysed an, uh, an analysis, analysis, analysis of 10,000 of their items, so looking at 10,000 items, looking at the design. 10,000 of them. 10,000, yeah. exactly. So you've got Gerard Street 1, you've got IKEA, they've looked at 10,000. Yeah. How can we redesign these so they can be reusable, they can be uh, refurbishable, they can be shareable or whatever. And then they need to then reconfigure their infrastructure, which at the moment is making stuff in factories, pumping it out. They have to reconfigure it and so it actually comes back in. And so you have like an infrastructure where where materials and products can circulate rather than just flow one way. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big undertaking, but it starts with leadership, strategy, mindset. Right, so we've talked about business and we've talked about products and design and food at various different scales. And we're nearly at the end of our greatest hits of Circle. We've got one more example. Um, I was able to catch up with the foundation's government and cities lead, Ashma Sukhdev, because we wanted to share an example, her favourite example, of the circular economy in operation at a regional or city level. So listen to what she said when I asked her that, ask her that question. We often talk about the circular economy or our favourite circular economy examples are often like a kind of single product or service. But you, in your time at the foundation, have worked a lot with our city and regional partners. And so I wanted to ask you, in that context, what's your favourite example of the circular economy in action? Um, so the, my go-to example, and one of my favorites, is actually from the city of Belo Horizonte in Brazil. Um, it is, for those of you that don't know, Brazil's, I think, third largest city, um, so quite big in scale. And the Brazil on the whole and the city of Belo Horizonte in particular were facing quite a significant e-waste problem. So think old computers, phones, etc., piling up. Um, and as a solution to that e-waste problem, uh, the city decided to set up these centers for computer reconditioning. So um, places where they were actually taking the old computers, um, not sending them to landfill and turning them into new ones. What was really um, unique about the, these computer reconditioning centers was that they, took, they got citizens from low-income communities, usually youth who are unemployed from the age of 16 to 24, to actually receive extensive training on how to restore those computers and the IT equipment in general. Um, and then the refurbished computers would actually then go on to support more than 300 digital inclusion sites. So those computers were being used then by locals who didn't have access to computers and the internet otherwise, who had limited digital literacy. Um, 
So they were kind of being used to equip public libraries and schools and these inclusion centers. Um, so, and I think the reason that I, I love this example is that firstly, it's of course tackling e-waste, um, but it's also sort of resulting in skills training for those that are unemployed and digital inclusion for people who don't have access to computers otherwise. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great example of the circular economy in action. And I guess like it speaks to this, you know, I, I fronted it by saying uh, examples that go beyond like how we redesigning a very specific product. It talks about a kind of larger redesign of, well, of I guess in that case of like a kind of community that speaks to some of the opportunities that exist when you apply this concept to restructure social issues and social topics as well as just, um, you know, for example, uh, like a pair of headphones being more modular by design. Exactly. And when you're thinking about the cities trying to solve these problems, they're always thinking at that kind of broader scale. Um, they're not just having to deal with one set of headphones and how that's going to be designed or re remanufactured. Um, they're having to think about the whole system and how do they take all of this e-waste, um, solve that problem and stop e-waste being going to landfill, um, but also how do they solve for their other priorities around economic development and social inclusion. So um, that's why I love kind of these city scale examples. That was Ashima, our governments and cities lead. Nick, where do people go from here to find out more brilliant circular economy examples and the best of the best of our greatest hits? Okay, well, uh the obvious place is to go to our website uh, and we have our case study library there. So we have 60 or 70 or 80 cases covering all sectors, cities, policy, you name it. Um, I quite like Circulate, our Circulate uh, news platform. I think it's on Medium. Um, that brings together yeah. cases under particular sort of subjects um, uh, such as food and agriculture and even different regions of the world. So Circulate's a good place. And of course, YouTube. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And of course, that just barely scratches the surface of circular economy examples in action. So do follow Nick's suggestions and do subscribe to this podcast to hear even more examples in a range of contexts, a range of geographies and across a range of products and sectors. We'd enormously appreciate it if you could rate, like, review our podcast and stay tuned for more content coming soon. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.